seated. You know, like I say a word and then you say the first word that comes to your mind. Like if I were to say Valentine's Day, you would say, some of you would say, oh, that's right. (laughs) Come on. As a friend of mine said the other day, Friday, I've known for 363 days that Valentine's Day is on Sunday. (laughs) So if I were to say press, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Thank you. That's right. That is the correct answer. Now I have a bit of a a conundrum because you both said the right answer. And I have a French press here for you, for whoever got it right. You don't like French press, so now you've lost. And I know that you guys love coffee, so we'll get you that next. But you know what else I think of when I think of the word press? I think of this fabulous invention called Press and Seal, and I have to admit to my wife that it is a far superior product than, say, just saran wrap. So who's a big fan of press and seal? Yes, way back there. I don't know if I can get it as far back there, but I know that I can get it to you guys. And both of you, because one of you is going get, to get close, and you're going to try and grab it, but John really wants it, so I have two, and I'll throw one to both of you. So this first one's going to go to John. You ready? Okay? And then we're going to go shorter with the second one to you guys. Press and seal's magic! You're like, how does this work so well? You tip the bowl over, and you're like, it's still sealed. But let's not get distracted from the real press, the French press. You're like, oh my word, why do you have three French presses? Well, because if you're drinking coffee by yourself, you drink out of this size French press. You don't drink out of the single cup French press because that is absolutely ludicrous. And if you have a friend over, the eight cup is perfect. Or if you really have things to get done that day, you drink a full eight cup French press and then you're really ready to go. And if you have friends over, uh, maybe two other friends, then you make the 12 cup and you make the eight cup because frankly, you're going to want to drink that much coffee. The challenge though with the French press is what? It gets cold. Yeah, so then you need a French press with a carafe. And then if you let it just sit there, it leaches up, and so you need the fabulous bonjour that allows you to lock off the grounds. There's great debate around the French press. Some people think that you dump in the, gr- the water. First you dump in the grounds, some, then you dump in the water. Some people say you stir the grounds. That is wrong. That is wrong. Don't let anyone tell you that you stir the grounds. You want to put the coffee in, put a little bit of hot water in, let the coffee bloom, and then you fill it up to the top. You let it sit for four and a half minutes, not one second longer, and then you press down. Some people are like, I don't like coffee. We'll pray for you. I have to make a correction last week. I said only the true believers were here. That's not true. If you're at home, if you were at home, I love you. Be safe. Be at home. Frankly, if I didn't have this job, I would be sitting at home drinking from my French press in my warm house, let's be honest. French press, there's great debate around who invented it. Was it the French? Was it the Italians? Another press that's very important is what? The full court press. 1950, John McClendon invented the full court press. It didn't get that much traction because he was coaching in the African League at the time, the African American League, because the leagues were segregated. But John McClendon, 1950, created the full court press. 
John did not provide us with tapas last week. And many of you were very disappointed. This week your tapas is buffalo cauliflower. You roast some cauliflower in the oven at 450 degrees, and then you toss it in some delicious buffalo sauce, and you will be very, very happy with yourself. Today we are in Philippians chapter 3, and I hope you're continuing to do your memory verse. How many of you, when you put on your shoes or your boots this week, repeated the memory verse, I'm found in Christ? This week our memory verse is right out of the gate, starting in verse 12 of chapter 3. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's interesting because uh, the commentators don't like that most Bible translations have broken this up because really it is a continuation of the thought that we have been working with for some time now. Paul says, not that I've already obtained this. What is the this that he is talking about? Well, last week, if you remember, he is talking about the attaining of the resurrection. And on Wednesday nights, we've been talking about this trajectory that salvation is not an event. It's the totality of this process from justification to sanctification to salvation that occurs when we are dead and reunited with Christ in glorification. And Paul is saying, I have not obtained this. The this referring to the resurrection from the dead. He's like, I'm still alive, therefore I have not obtained this thing. Or that I am already perfect. It's interesting because we, we have a, a, a challenge with that word. This word of perfection. I have a friend, Waco, who's from Argentina, and he, obviously English is not his first language. But whenever you ask him anything, it could be this morning, and he walks outside, you say, Waco, how's it going out there? It's perfect. No, it's not. Waco, just admit it's 39 below windshield. Why do we even have to experience this? I mean, how many of us have asked, God, why do we live here? I get texts from friends like, seriously, you have a mental problem. And Waka would be like, it's perfect. It's perfect. Paul says, I am not already made perfect. He knows that his status is not one of perfection. And if we remember to a few weeks ago, Paul had obtained every Jewish standard. So by all of the the Jewish standards, all of the worldly standards, Paul would have been seen as the perfect specimen, the perfect Jew, and yet he says right here, not that I have already been made perfect. And part of it is we need to understand what this word means. This Greek word that is translated as perfect is telos or telos, and it's not about perfectionism, it's about the intent that something was created for. So Paul is saying, I have not obtained my sole purpose in this life. Or as one commentator says, the aim toward which something is pointing. Paul does this accurate self-assessment and he says, I've not obtained it. I'm not perfect. 
I have not arrived at fully understanding what it means to live for Christ because that is something that I will not do until I die. That is what Paul is saying. For far too long, we have messed up this this concept of salvation. And and as Joel was pointing out, Joel was filling in to teach for me on Wednesday night, and he, he was making the case that theology has strong implications in our life, and bad theology creates bad outcomes. And Paul is trying to orient us towards what it means to understand this concept of salvation and faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not something that we arrive at at a point in time and then the rest of life is gravy. Remember, we talked about this concept of working out or working at our salvation. Paul here is again saying, I have not arrived. And if one of the writers of a large portion of the New Testament is saying, I'm not perfect. I have not arrived. I think that causes us to pause. And he says, Since I have not arrived, I press on. This is the main verb of these two sentences. I press on to make it, what is the it? This concept of salvation, my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And this this view, again, is not so much the purchasing or the ownership of, but the taking hold of. And you think about kids, and they do uh, wonderful with this. This is not a concept that we have to learn. It's just ingrained in us. You get something, and you're like, this is mine. (laughs) Mine. Mine. Hang out with a toddler or a teenager. You're like, this is mine. Do not touch it. Do not take it. This is mine. I have taken hold of this thing. And Paul is saying, I press on so that I can take a hold of this because Jesus Christ has taken hold of me. Think about that. Jesus Christ has taken hold of Paul. And he is saying, I hope to take a hold of him and this thing called salvation. To make his faith his own. And, and this singular concept is something that has driven me for so long and was the main driving force around why I wanted to become a professor. Because so often we don't develop our own faith. We inherit faith from what, we're, what we grow up with. And people say it all the time in their faith stories, and I push them on that. And you're like, faith stories, those were nice. I agree. We'll bring them back. Just like we're bringing back the coffee, slowly. I mean, let's not rush into things. <laughs> but you, the, the comment is, I grew up in a Christian home. And the question then becomes, well, what does that even mean? Well, my parents were followers of Jesus Christ. Okay, now we're getting more accurate. The challenge, though, is I am not a follower of Jesus Christ because my parents were followers of Jesus Christ. My faith is not my own when I simply regurgitate the things that have been told to me 
And how often we see you grow up in the church and then you go off to college and you're like, I don't know what I believe. And since we haven't taken possession of our own faith, we don't even know what we believe and then we go by the wayside. Or this phrase, well, I've always been a Christian. False. (laughs) That is not actually true. You are not born a follower of Jesus Christ. You're not even a follower of Jesus Christ because you go to church. What? That, people at home are like, yeah, of course, I don't go to church. I watch it on TV. <laughs> I love you at home. You can't get a French press when you're sitting at home. Eventually you'll come back. We'll have coffee, faith stories, new program, and I'll be winning the prayer requests. <laughs> Slow but steady. What Paul is saying is I have to make this faith, this thing called faith, my own. I have to take possession of it. Because Jesus Christ has reached down to take possession of me, and I need to respond accordingly. So often we ride the coattails of other people as if that, their faith is our faith. Think about this, though. Say this to yourself out loud, either today, right now, tonight, every single day when you wake up. Jesus, when we are in Christ, Jesus has made me his own. Jesus Christ has taken hold of me. What an incredible picture. It's Valentine's Day, and and we we eat these disgusting candy hearts. Be mine. (laughs) What does that even mean? Ownership, possession. Be mine. And Jesus says, I have made you my own. Will you make me your own? Then he goes on. And he gives us a bit of a jolt, and the Greek you know, language around this is he gives us this vocative, which you're like, oh, who cares? It just sounds great, though. It's like that semantic satiation vocative. It's like, boom. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind. It's this interesting idea. Forgetting what lies behind. We can really translate this or come around this concept in two ways. One way is this idea of forgetting what has happened in the past. The mistakes that I have made, the opportunities that I've missed, the times that I've battled with my sin and lost. When we bring our past to the cross... When we seek to ask forgiveness from our sins, from Jesus Christ, those sins are gone. You say, God, will you forgive me for the sin that I've already asked forgiveness for? He says, what sin? We're told that our sins, when we are asked for forgiveness, they are as far from the east as from the west. As Brian Stevenson says, we are not defined by the worst thing that we've ever done. You ever think about that? 
You ever think about this concept? When we look at somebody who's in prison and we say that they're a criminal, and for the rest of their life we say they're a criminal, they made one mistake, or maybe two or three, it doesn't matter, but that doesn't define who we are. The past has made me who I am in the present, but what I do in the present determines where I will be in the future. And so this idea of forgetting what's behind, it's allowing us to be freed from the voice of the enemy that says, are you really forgiven? Have you really moved beyond that person that you were? Now, now immediately we think about this idea of abandoning the past, not critically thinking about the things that have happened in the past or listening to the voices of what has happened in the past. That, that's not what we're talking about here. Because I'm all for reflecting on the past and how we have gotten to where we are today. What we are specifically talking about here is not allowing our past to dictate our future, not thinking about what is in the past and having it define what our future in Christ looks like. Because we know when we are in Christ, we are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And Paul says, I have forget, I'm forgetting what lies behind. The second way we can think of this is the old, how would I say this? It's like the Uncle Rico take on our faith. Thank you. Those of you who don't get it, you don't get it. Paul's saying, it doesn't matter what I've done. <laughs> he's already given this, this huge list of all of these incredible things that he's done in his life. And he's like, that doesn't matter. Remember last week, this idea of, of rubbish, trash. How often, though, do we live in the past? Back when I was in high school, I used to squat 600 pounds. Used to run marathons all the time. Show you my medals. You're like, your body does not look like it's made for marathons. Different body, actually. Back in the day, I used to read my Bible all the time. Used to serve all the time. I used to do all these things. Used to go on these things called mission trips. Paul is saying, what we have done in the past really doesn't matter. He's forgetting what lies behind. And this is where American culture actually helps us in our faith. This American culture of what have you done for me lately? If Tom Brady loses the first two games of next year, people are like, ah, he's washed up, old. God, that guy's old. Oh, really? He's won seven Super Bowls. <laughs> yeah, but what has he done this year? I mean, look at Taylor Swift. She's like, you know what? Why don't I just drop two albums, and then why don't I re-record all of these songs? Because why not? <laughs> Paul says, I am not satisfied with the things that I have done in the past, because what lies in the past is in the past. I am straining 
forward to what lies ahead. You think about trying to reach that thing on the top shelf, like the French press you haven't used in a very long time. Straining forward to what lies ahead. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on. Colin O'Brady, a few years ago, set out to uh, do this crazy crossing of Antarctica with another guy. He was going to race this other guy from uh, Britain who had, had tried it before and was an experienced explorer. And, and so it was about 980 miles that they were going to traverse across the Antarctic ice shelf. And they were going to be uh, doing it unsupported and fully human-powered. He wrote about it in this uh, book called The Impossible First, which if you listen to the haters, that's a bit of a misnomer. But in the world of clickbait, it seems to make sense because you're like, oh, that's a shocking title. I'll read that. So anyways, he, he's dragging the sled that weighs approximately 400 pounds, and he's going to do it for 50 uh, to 60 days. And, and it's just to give you a perspective. Spend the next 50-odd days dragging a sled from here to approximately Jackson Hole, Wyoming, in the same weather we've experienced this morning, every single day, by yourself. So he sets out to do it, and he determines that when he gets to the end of every day, he's going to take 11 more steps, skins with his, steps with his skis that have skins on them. He gets to the end and he says, I'm going to take 11 more steps every day. So that's what he does. And he ends up completing it two days before Lewis Rudd completes it. He presses on. When he gets to the end, he says, I can press just a little bit further towards this goal. It's interesting, this last week I was skiing with the kids uh, out west, and every day when I put on my, uh, you're like, wow, those are really big ski boots. That, that is accurate. Uh, I'd put these on every day, and I would think of John Sermon and putting on Christ. And the interesting thing about those of you who ski, you know how it works, where uh, your strongest position in the ski boot is when you are pressed forward into the ski boot. But we have this tendency to think, oh, I'm going too fast. I need to lean back. That does no good. (laughs) Your real control in your ski boot is when you are pressed, shins into the front. Then you go faster. Yes, but you are in more control. And every day as I was skiing, I was thinking about this concept of putting on my boot and pressing in. And we tell our kids when they're skiing, you say, all right, this is a great trick if you're trying to teach your kids how to ski or maybe you're trying to teach yourself how to ski. You peel the banana and you put it into the front of the boot. Not literally. That would be awkward. And then when you're thinking, you say, press the bananas. Right? Press the bananas. You can't press the bananas if you are pizzaing. Right? It's kind of hard and awkward. But if you're in the proper ski stance, you press into the bananas, and then you have more control over your skis. What Paul is saying here is this thing called faith in Jesus Christ is about not just putting on the boot, 
Not just being in Christ, but once we are in Christ, then we press forward. We press in. It gets scary, yes. But we have to trust that Jesus and the Holy Spirit have us. Because why? Because we are pressing towards something. We are pressing towards this goal. And I understand we, we have this pendulum swings of extremism and historical Christianity where it's like salvation is earned and it's all about your effort and all these things. And I get that. And then the pendulum swings the other way and it's like, oh, you don't have to do anything. You just say yes to Jesus and then you're good to go. And Paul gives us this different concept where he says, I am pressing forward towards Christ. And I think of it this way. Remember when we used to go to concerts? That was so, so much fun. <laughs> but when you go to a concert, you don't just get in the front door and then say, oh, this is nice. I could hear it. Yeah, yeah. And if it's a general admission concert, you don't just get at the back, or at least when you were younger, you didn't just get at the back and say, oh, this is nice. What do you do? You press yourself forward as far as you can get until you're on the stage being spit on by the band members because that's what you're looking for. Is that how we approach faith in Christ? Do we press forward, press on? The French press doesn't work as just a steeping chamber. That's why it's called the French press. You have to actually press it down. Faith in Jesus Christ is not a destination. It is a journey. It's an adventure that starts when we say yes to Jesus Christ. When we put the boots on, when we are found in Christ. That's the first step. And from there, we press forward until the end. We press forward until we meet Christ face to face. And that is what Paul is talking about when he says, I press on toward the goal. Lent starts on Wednesday. And I challenge us. Maybe this is the time when we say, we've said yes to Christ, we've put the boot on, and we say, all right, I'm ready to press. Or maybe we've been hanging back on the backs of our skis and we're out of control because that's where we're at when we're on the back of our skis and we need to press into Christ. Whatever it is, we are called to press on, press forward, forgetting what is behind May we do that together. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning and we do ask, what are you thinking? <laughs> what are you thinking creating an environment that, that is so frigid? And we know that you're thinking about us and the care that you provide for us. And we read and we hear the words of Paul 
this committed disciple of yours. And we know that there is power in pressing forward. And so we ask today, Holy Spirit, illuminate for us what it means for each of us in our lives as individuals to press forward. Help us to not lean back, but to press forward into whatever it is that you have for us, knowing that our goal and our prize is you. In Jesus' name, amen.